Greetings, I'm Carl Richards, host of the new podcast, 50 Fires, from executive producers Chip and Joanna Gaines. As a listener of the stories we tell, I wanted to share a recent conversation I had with Chip on 50 Fires about what money means to him, because that's what 50 Fires is all about, money and meaning. As a proud financial advisor and former columnist for the New York Times, I've had thousands of conversations with people all over the world about money, and I'm not talking about investing or budgeting. I'm talking about our relationship with money. So if you enjoy this conversation with Chip, check out 50 Fires wherever you get your podcasts. I'm talking to all sorts of people that I find fascinating, and we have new episodes every week. Enjoy the show. Cheers. Blind Nil Audio. Greetings, Carl here. If you're like me, you were first introduced to Chip Gaines on his blockbuster renovation TV show, Fixer Upper, where he serves as a contractor, an adoring husband, and sometimes comic relief. But this episode of 50 Fires reveals a different side of Chip. Not only do we get to hear more about Chip the entrepreneur, we get to see the side of Chip that is spiritual, reflective, and philosophical. We dive deep into Chip's unconventional attitude towards risk. We talk about using money as a tool for impact versus using it as a measurement of success. And the fact that Jesus, and I'm saying this with deep respect, was a reckless financial planner. And guess what? Highlight of the whole show, Chip's wife, Joanna, makes a surprise cameo appearance. So without further ado, let's get right into it. This is 50 Fires, I'm Carl Richards, and today we're talking about money with Chip Gaines. It's good to see you again. Oh, vice versa. Yeah, I remember last time we met, we were on the couch there in the office and uh, you were firing some questions that it's always uh, so nice that had you and I had a cup of coffee and a few more hours together, there's no telling what uh, mysteries of the universes we would have been able to solve together, you know? Right, solve all the problems. Yeah, for sure. And it it almost feels like we could jump off one of those conversations we were having. I don't know if you recall, I asked you what money means to you. Do you remember what you said? Of course. I've still got it. I've got it as a, on a piece of paper. You, you were kind enough to just throw it out. And I felt like, I don't know, I always feel insecure to be really frank, even in this moment. Like I might. Hey, it's Carl. I know it's early, but I want to point out real quickly this phrase right out of the gate of being insecure. The idea that Chip Gaines in the first three minutes of our conversation used the word insecure just reminded me that we are all on a journey together to figure out this thing we call money. And the fact that you feel or I feel insecure around how to talk about it, how to feel about it, shouldn't surprise us. Like I, my insecurity is that I feel like it's almost like if you've been brought up in the church and, and then, then, then you run across an old buddy and, Hey, how you doing? You know, your, your mind starts kind of wrestling through, am I supposed to say like what they taught me in church to respond to that particular answer? Or am I supposed to tell him the truth, which is something completely other than, you know, some other problem (laughs) because I've always viewed money differently. Like I've always just seen it as a tool. It was no different than the tools that I had to use back in the lawn business. When I would mow grass, there were some tools that allowed me to do certain things 
things quicker. And when you had access to those things, things happened quickly. And when you didn't have those things, things took you longer to accomplish. And, and quite frankly, they were just a lot harder. And so when you ask, quote, what does money mean to you? It's just, it's just a tool for Joe and I. And we use that tool in lots of ways. Sometimes it has to do with our business and, and the expansion thereof. And sometimes it has to do with other human beings and the, our ability to do things for people that matter to us. I don't know. For Joe and I, it's always been more practical, maybe spontaneous, but it's just been a practical tool. But I think most of the world views it differently than we do. So... How how did you, I'm super curious about, if we back up, like, do you remember your earliest memory of becoming aware of that? Like, what, what's your earliest memory of money? My earliest memory of money is fairly representative of how I view it in total, is that somebody knocked on the door in our little house in Albuquerque, New Mexico. My parents were very middle class, maybe arguably somewhere a little less than that. I don't know. They're just, just trying hard to pay the bills back in my sister and I's younger, younger days. And somebody knocked on the door and I was just a kid. And I don't know if they were selling something or if it was kind of like a philanthropic scenario to where they were kind of telling you a sob story and you had the opportunity to sort of give to this situation or if they were just salespeople selling a magazine or a vacuum cleaner or something of this nature. But mom says, literally, she comes in and I'm rummaging through her purse and she's like, baby, what are you doing? And I was like, well, somebody's at the front door and they were asking if, if we had any money. And I was like, huh. of course, we've got lots of money. Hold on one second. You know, I know exactly where all <laughs> of this right stuff is. is. <laughs> I know right where this is stored. You know, I know right where to go. And I was just like unloading, of course, dollar bills and change. I'm sure it wasn't $20 collectively, but <laughs> But, you know, I was trying to like haul it to the front door and mom kind of stopped me. And but she tells that story because she just, you know, she's convinced that I've just got this big heart and that I've got a great heart for people, which is true. But my early days of money, sadly, evolved, kind of kind of set the tone for who I became as a young adult because I didn't care much for money in the early days. I was always finding myself in predicaments to where obviously I was always doing things that felt very irresponsible. And in fairness, maybe they were irresponsible, but but they were always either big risks that felt irrational to just about everybody around me, or I was giving away almost more than I had available to myself. So then you found your own self in predicaments consistently to where I was like, well, dang it. I didn't even think about that. When I gave away that much money, I looked up on Friday and was like, wait a second, I can't even pay my employees or I don't even and have enough for for my own self right. and so just the balance of all of that do you think you mentioned earlier the church like was there something you found from your religious and spiritual upbringing that fed that desire like the way maybe jesus pointed to money like was there anything that that stuck with you as you were growing up that fed that view of money I think so. I mean, I really sincerely believe it, but I am going to be also just a tad critical in the sense that, unfortunately, I don't feel like the church does a great job of what I'm implying here. I feel like yeah. the church sometimes can be built off of these, well, what have you done? And did you do all these responsible and rational things first? And then therefore, these these things will occur later. Yeah. For me, and Joe and I are in agreement in this sense, it's like we believe in God and we believe if God puts us in a place to where we have the opportunity to do something, whether it feels rational or otherwise, we like to do those things because for us, the miracle is the fun part. If I gave a little bit more than I felt comfortable giving, 
on a Tuesday, could God fill that gap by Friday? And sometimes, you know, I mean, canny or canny. And obviously, if you were mistaken and he didn't, in fact, call you to do that, and then by Friday, you have to deal with the ramifications of that, that's the downside. And I've been in that position for sure. But when he shows up on Friday and was like, I was wondering if you were going to trust me with this. I was wondering if you were going to believe that this was possible. And, you know, church struggles with that. I think church has become almost as fundamentally logical in some cases. And again, I just want to be generic, not about any specific place or specific thought, but generally speaking, I feel like if it's not A plus B equals C, then you shouldn't do it because that wouldn't be responsible or quote unquote, a good Mm -hmm. steward of what you've been given. And I wonder if God agrees with those sentiments sometimes. Yeah, let me, I've been on a deep dive on all this stuff. So I'm super curious just to see how you react to this. Because I have been looking at uh, across all the wisdom traditions, but particularly what Jesus had to say about money. And if you take, first of all, there's more verses in the Bible, the Old and New Testament together about money and possessions than any other single subject, which is fascinating. But when you get to Jesus's teachings, particularly around why are you worried? Like, take no thought for tomorrow. Look at the lilies, right? They, they don't worry. Look at the birds. They don't worry. And, and yet even King Solomon in all his glory wasn't as beautiful as them. And then there's another one. It all seems to be like kind of dripping with sarcasm in our day, right? Like how, what manner of man would build a barn, fill it, and then build another one? So as I cobbled all this together, and then you point at uh, like at other wisdom traditions too. I mean, it's a fundamental tenet of Buddhism, like non-attachment is one of the whole points. Wow. Oh, and last one that you'll appreciate, because I just ran across this the other day. Judas, right, was upset. I don't know if you remember um, Mary of Bethany brings her alabaster box, right? Which is like the safety deposit box of the time, right? Totally. The best of the best. Maybe maybe her uh, her life savings potentially, yeah. Totally. Busts it open, does the oil, and then Judas is a bit upset. And the narrator, I believe this is in John, the narrator says, he wasn't upset because he cared about the poor. He was upset because he was a thief and he carried the bag. And I've always been curious of like, one of my thoughts about that is like, why did Jesus appoint a thief as the CFO? Wow. Right. And the only thing I can believe is he was just trying to make the point like, look, it doesn't matter. In fact, it matters so little. Let me show you how little I care about this. I'm gonna point. <laughs> so all my, my question here is just, it feels to me like if we were to act that way, that almost 99 out of 100 financial people would call us reckless. Totally. You bet. Like if he showed up today and said, here's the way to view money. We would say that's reckless. So in other words, Jesus was a reckless financial planner. (laughs) (laughs) That's going to be the headline. Just react to that. Oh, I agree. I believe it. I believe it's true. And I think that's basically the bottom line. I just always wonder, it's just like, why was Jesus poor? Why was Jesus such a free spirit? Exactly the way you've described him. It's just like, that's the Jesus that I'm drawn to. I mean, I don't know, would he be a deacon of a (laughs) church and, and responsible for this thing or that thing? I think he would be more open to open 
opening his doors and saying, let's give until we don't have a single thing left in this entire place to give, you know, so that everybody in this ecosystem can be, be fed and be taken care of. And so anyway, my first response or first thought to that is just like, yes and amen. And I think to be really frank, that's the, that's the Jesus, that's the version of all of this that Joe and I are, are trying to pursue. But I will say there's just tons and tons of resistance, but also in the entrepreneurial sense, it's like, we like to take big chances and big bets and, and we like to make big gambles to see how it all shakes out and, uh, and where God fits into the uh, equation. Hey, I can't help myself, but to comment here, because what Chip is pointing at has been a real personal dilemma for me for over two decades. I've been thinking about this beautiful version of the law of attraction and having an abundance mindset for a very long time. And what I struggle with is what Chip points at as well. Like that can be reckless. It can be dangerous. And we see this play out all the time as the result of somebody in our lives that read that crazy book, The Secret, which points to the other version of this, this juvenile idea that all we have to do is manifest something and the universe will deliver. I really struggle with the difference. Where's the line? Super, super interesting to me. Let's go. You mentioned just in passing that Sometimes that causes problems, right? All the things, like the taking of risk, the giving of money. Like, and you mentioned that there was, and I'm particularly curious about times that you and Joe have had to deal with that. Like you, you talked about early, early on, like there were some mm. times where it got us in trouble. Totally. Like, can you tell me a story about like getting in trouble and, and particularly how the two of you, because it, it, I'm particularly, I mean, maybe you guys, maybe in Waco, spouses don't fight about money. Maybe maybe you're like the exception, but I'm particularly interested in how two different people from two very different backgrounds, two different families. Like, I think it's so crazy. We throw like totally different financial backgrounds, toss them in and nobody said anything to us. Oh, true. Like talk me through some of those early experiences where you got in trouble and you had to resolve it together. Totally. And I will say those were the challenges. We were from very different backgrounds. My parents were very pick yourself up by your bootstraps. You know, if you fail, that's part of the learning process. Her parents were like, if you failed, you failed. And that was a real ramification for the failure of it. It was like a bad thing where my parents were like, bro, everybody fails. That's part of it. What'd you learn from it? How'd you do? There's a funny story that I joke about that it was like my family started businesses. And then after they didn't work, we would get together and huddle up and talk about what what we learned from that failed experience. Her family would get together and write about businesses on what I learned later in college, basically amounts to a business plan. And I married (laughs) Joanna and she had like a stack of business plans. And I'm looking through these going, man, this would work. This, This totally worked. This is great. Who came up with this stuff? I mean, just stacks of things. And I was like, which of these have you done? And she's like, literally, true story. I haven't done any of these. I just write these things down and and hypothetically pretend to want to do them one day. I was like, babe, we should do one of these now. And and hilariously, the end of that story is she bought a little shop on Bosky Boulevard, a little street just, you know, practically on the wrong side of town here in Waco. And, and that was her first iteration of what now has evolved into Magnolia, the retail 
retail store and space. And she was just like me. She was just trying. She was just taking a step out. But my persistence about doing things a certain way always caused problems, really frankly. And I mean, it was sad because of course, for people like me that aren't intentionally trying to do these things. I wasn't a gambler per se, but I was always pushing the envelope on what we could afford. But what was true is some of the times it was these selfish desires to keep up with the Joneses a little bit. I was always kind of bent to be a successful kid. Kids in my high school voted me most likely to succeed or most likely to be the future president of the United States or something. And then in college, I wasn't academically great. So people started was like, well, maybe you're not going to be the president because most of those dudes are pretty smart. But uh, but maybe you're going to be incredible in sales or in some other fashion and be rich or whatever. And you know, by the time I was in my 30s, I mean, if some of those guys had hooked up with corporations and they were making the amount of money that I'd make annually, they'd make that in a month. And so I was like, man, I am missing something drastically because I'm here trying to start all these businesses and do all these things. But she always kind of had this overarching faith in me that A, I was going to figure it out. B, I was going to do the right thing in the moral sense of the word. So she knew it wasn't ever going to be unethical things I was doing. And then all of a sudden, everything came together. And obviously, most of all, it was the show. I mean, I I always hate that because as an entrepreneur, I wish I could have just done it. And then somehow the show was introduced later. But really what's true is we were small business owners and we were always just teetering on making it and not making it. And then when the show happened and the scale finally caught up, what was great about us is that we were just trying to get to some this basic place. Now we've got this house and now let's say we've got a car or two and now we feel comfortable that we've got a little money in the bank or whatever. That was our whole objective. And once we started getting quote unquote successful, we kind of looked back in the rearview mirror. Our, our lifestyle didn't continue to elevate with that success. We have this 40 acre farm and we've got some goats and we've got a couple of animals and five kids that run around and, and are perfect in, in our view. And it's just like, that was the whole thing. And the other things were less interesting to us, if you will. Yeah. There's so many things I'm curious about. One is this idea of defining enough, because that that what you just pointed to is really hard for all of us. Totally. Because there's this as soon as you, it's called the arrival fallacy. Like as soon as you arrive, you feel like, oh, I'll be happy once I arrive here. And generally, as soon as you (laughs) arrive, the goalposts move, right? And often because of what we see everybody else doing. So like we can just blame Instagram for the whole thing. But were you and Joe clear about what it would mean to have enough? No. And I wish that's, I, I, sincerely in my insecurity, back to my point about me as an entrepreneur, I wanted to be a businessman. That's all I care about now. But in fact, what I am kind of is a celebrity. Mm. What I am kind of is the guy you've seen on television or, or if you bought my book, you bought it because there was some connection to the TV show. You know, you didn't buy my book because I just knew the most information or because I had done all these incredible things and you respected those things. So that's my chip on my shoulder. I'm insecure about that. But if Joe and I didn't strategically build this company and then go get a private investor at at stage one and then a private equity firm at stage two with the goal of taking it public at stage three and we were going to make money all along, it's like, man, I wish I were smart enough to have said that that was the thought. But what was really the thought was we were just doing kind of the old fashioned next 
right thing. It felt right to us to go buy that little shop on Bosky. And for me, back in those days, I was just showing Joe, anything is possible. You're scared to death of this whole stack of business plans that you've been developing and pawing over since you were a little girl. And now here we're in a place to where, look, I don't have $50,000 in my pocket, but I can go borrow $50,000 from that bank. And I've done it a dozen times to do these other, you know, these uh, flips. Why don't we do this on this, on this little shop that you want to build and let's go for it. And, you know, one step after another, one, one right thing after another. But one thing that I have always been sort of gifted in is I was content kind of in every stage. Now I will say, as I say that, I'm kind of speaking out of both sides of my mouth because it was that season in my 30s to where I was looking around at all my buddies going, all my buddies are making more money than I am. All my buddies are doing things that are cooler in the, you know, because when you make a business and it turns into the business we have today, it looks awesome. (laughs) But somehow, Carl, and this is the miracle of it all, when we got to the farm, about the same time that the farm happened, the fame thing happened, and we felt that it was like this retreat. I mean, it was just our house like everybody else's house. It was not, it's not even a, a fancy house. My parents come to my place often and they're laughing going, man, we've got friends up in the Dallas forward area and all of them have nicer houses than you. How is this possible? It's like, we don't need a nicer house than this. This acreage is what we wanted. The cows are what we needed. The goats are what we needed. The kids, I keep going back to the kids. You know, this herd of kids was what we needed. We talked about those things. We strategically implemented some of those pieces of the puzzle. But my question back to you is, I wonder why. I wonder why when we reached that certain level, that threshold occurred that was so miserable before we met it because we were always chasing our tail. We were always short. You know, I was always making less money than the bills that were piling up behind it. But then all of a sudden, once we finally caught up to that one point in time, I wonder why we didn't then, once the money started rolling in in a slightly more significant way, I wonder why we weren't so anxious to trade in to those other opportunities. And I wonder if contentment isn't the secret answer to that question, but I also don't know that we knew that we were content, quote unquote. Yeah, it's so fascinating, right? Like, because there are certainly things you could still be chasing, you know, and the idea of, I think this is one of the things that's so frustrating for so many of us about money, and I think so beautiful about money, is that you pointed earlier, you called it the miracle, but I also love the term, the mystery. Okay. Because the idea, like nobody can define what enough is for you, Nobody can define a need versus a want. Like, I was just thinking about this. Can you remember, like, well, how big was the house you grew up in? A uh, house that I grew up in was probably somewhere around 2,000 square feet. How many kids? Uh, me and my older sister. So four total, mom and dad, brother and sister. I mean, me being the brother. And I, I remember when we first bought, when we bought our first home, you know, a small little house in this beautiful historic neighborhood in Salt Lake. And I was out front talking to our neighbor whose name was actually Homer and Homer, Homer had lived there for, for 60 years. And one of the neighbors, our friends across the street were moving out and he was like, why are they moving? And I said, well, they had their third kid. They, the house is too small. He's like, the Smiths raised seven kids in that house. (laughs) And so I was thinking about the idea and I'm sure you remember when like air conditioning in the car was like a super option. Totally. And now how would you survive? My parents used to always joke, if you want air conditioning, roll down the window. You know, there was a physical way that you (laughs) could roll down the window and catch some AC. Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting. So it's really hard to even define what a need versus a want is. Totally. And what's sufficient, what's enough. And it's, it's interesting that you've you you guys have navigated that 
to some degree, and you've pointed to like, it's still a struggle because it's a struggle for all of us. Um, what I, I'm really curious, because I've heard you say this a couple different places and a couple different times. I want to be this entrepreneur in the show, that causing you to be a little bit upset. Talk to me about that. Yeah, I, you know, I'm not insecure about almost anything, but the insecurity that does exist is simply put, I wanted to do this on my own. I wanted to do this, quote, my own way. And the negative thing I feel about the fame piece and the TV piece and the fact that that was part of the reason that we were able to kind of expand and and scale and and to build at scale what we've been able to build was because of the television show and I feel insecure about that mm. but in my confidence piece the the counter thought is that also it's true that there's been other people that have been given this sort of an opportunity you know I'm not the only person in the whole world to have ever gotten a television show for a season of time and had the opportunity to do whatever they chose to do with it. And most of those individuals chose to take the money that the TV contracts and the talent fees, if you will, produced because it's real money. Like when they, when, you know, at first you don't get paid a whole lot and it's probably like the music industry or even like the sports industry. I've got a lot of sports uh, friends that are like, oh, our first contract was terrible. You know, we were making league minimum despite the fact we were virtually, you know, best in class at season two or three of our career, but it took until we were five years into it to really get that contract that really set things differently. And so it's in the same vein, it was like, you've got the opportunity in the television business, the first couple of years, pretty modest income, I would argue and describe it as, but that second or third season, when the ratings started really changing and the circumstances really started elevating to where we were one of the uh, most watched cable programs uh, on cable and in the television ecosystem, it's like, boy, all of a sudden they called and were like, Hey, remember what you were making last year, bro? That, you know, multiply that by in. You know, this is a totally different circumstance now that you're producing these kind of results. And so, boy, the money was good enough for Joe and I to go, what are we doing messing with this little boutique retail shop? What are we doing building houses? What are we doing, you know, trying to build a real estate uh, company? And, and so in that vein, other people were given similar opportunities, I can imagine, and they chose, hey, this is the safer option. Let's just do what's the highest uh, return on our hourly investment, where Joe and I were just just like we were constantly plowing that money that we were making back into larger term concepts that now you can kind of see in the rearview mirror of it all. But yeah. I mean, they were massive risks. They were really scary. And Joe and I think at that point in our relationship and our careers, it, we've been married for 20 years this year. And so all of this started about 10 years ago in regards to the scalability and the show and the fame and the things. And as we were building this thing out a couple of years into that 10 years that I'm referring to, but about seven, eight years ago, Joe and I were making big bets on ourselves mm. for this future thing that we wanted to build. And we didn't have to do that. We could have just been putting the money in the bank or, or doing some other alternative altogether, or building a bigger house or some of these things that you're describing. But instead, we were constantly making these big bets. And I think as we started seeing some of those big bets play off, it becomes pretty addictive. You know, it becomes right. a lifestyle that's very exciting. You know, it's like you want to wake up in the morning to do this next big thing because you know it's not going to be boring and it's not going to be easy. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'd love to spend just a little bit of time on how you and Joe think about money in your family now, right? So we, we, we've got a little bit of the history about how you grew up with it. What do you hope your kids are learning from you about how to handle money and what it means? 
Totally. My kids are all kind of on the younger side of the spectrum. Now we do have a young man that's now 18 years old and kids are just drastically different. So Joe and I have just kind of fallen into this less pressured environment that we're going to, to the very best. Oh my gosh, you guys have got to see this. Speaking of the devil, Joe has come in in her uh, Ghostbuster outfit. So oh no. See this. Hold on. <laughs> Joey. Come, come hey everybody. Let me explain real quickly what's going on here. Chip and I recorded this conversation on Halloween and Joe happened to walk by and Chip pulled her into the conversation. So when Joe showed up, she was dressed as a ghostbuster for Halloween. But it's also important to know that as much as I enjoyed my conversation with Chip, this may have been the coolest moment to hear Joe say, hi, Carl. And get a recording of that so I could go home and show my wife, who happens to be a designer and a big fan of Joe, because she now thinks I'm legit. Come, come. I wanted to see you. <laughs> hi, Carl. Hi, how are you? I can't hear you. But uh, Crew is not going to totally you? understand the Ghostbuster concept. He's probably going to be mad, but... Yeah, it's legit. Little does he know. It's like she she's trying to zap him <laughs> with a laser ray. And, put him in my backpack. Yeah, put him in her backpack and, and, and uh, send him to the Sorry. afterlife, you know. I love you, baby. Good I to see you. Hi. I wanted him to see your cute outfit. Oh, good. <laughs> he said hi. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, so there's no one size fits all approach and kids are all different. And so Joe and I have just kind of, as, as Drakey, our oldest kind of started evolving, we were kind of on both sides. One, we were super intentional and, oh, we got to do all this stuff. So he didn't screw up and he sees it this way or that way, but we've kind of given ourselves a little grace and a little slack as parents. And what's true is it's just like, I think kids learn more about life and finances and faith and things of this nature that are important to uh, Joe and I more from watching than us giving these these specific lectures, if you will. And so not to imply that we're not thoughtful about it at all because we're, we're extremely thoughtful about it, but we also just do it. If I'm driving and I don't see a fellow human being that's broken down that needs some help with their vehicle or could get picked up and driven from point A to point B and and, and I just do it. And I think that our kids watch those things. And then hopefully that sort of shapes their worldview. But I also want them to know that in order to accomplish big, great, complicated things, you typically have to make big, risky, complicated bets mm. associated with that. And there's got to be some kind of yin and yang. How do you be conservative like Joe is a naturally conservative person that's responsible and thoughtful about her money, which is great. And I'm so thankful that she's my partner because we work together incredibly well in that way. But then how does she then in those moments trust me when we're basically betting on something to occur that might put us in a you know compromising uh, circumstance if it doesn't work out. How do you kind of balance that? And I think my kids hopefully have have gotten a master class from Joe and I both just to, as we've experienced this on the fly and done this in real time. We'll be right back with more from 50 Fires. Welcome back to 50 Fires. Remember back when you were 30 and all your friends were making more money? They'd run off to do the corporate jobs. Yes, sir. Now you're business owner, super successful entrepreneur, media personality, like whatever label you want to put on it. How do you check that? 
kind of comparative ego now? Do you struggle with that at all now? Like looking at your peers now? Now that we're where we're at, I feel sincerely like I'm the richest person in the world. I, I've run into real live billionaires and I've run into people worth hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. And generally speaking, when we leave those experiences, there's not a single thing that they have that I'm desperately in pursuit of still. Mm. Do I want to be successful and accomplished in all the things? And am I still motivated and driven? I really am. Joe and I are both drivers. I mean, we're both fighting for some next thing, but the next thing's not more money per se. It's some other things. I mean, I'm driven in ways like an athlete might, and you never critique an athlete who comes back and says, hey, I, uh, I hit 290 last year. My goal Goal is to hit 300 this year. Oh man, what are you talking about? 290 is great, man. Why aren't you satisfied? Why aren't you content? You know, they're not content. They want to be better. You know, have you ever met a track star that was like, well, I ran a uh, 40 uh, second uh, 400 and I'm hoping to really keep that exactly the same for the r- duration of my of my career. Right. You know, of course, they want to run a, If they ran a 40, they want to run a 39. If they ran a 39, they want to run a 38. It's kind of human nature. And in that same vein, I feel that way as an entrepreneur and as a business person. It's just like, man, I'm driven to do the next thing, the, to succeed in a new, unique way that I didn't succeed at yesterday. And it might be bigger, better, different, whatever the circumstances are. And I think in that way, it's healthy. Yeah. I mean, you know, if we became billionaires through this whole experience, I'd be really proud of that. And I'm not going to defer it. I mean, I'm not going to be like, no, I'm not a billionaire. These, these things are terrible. All these things. I'll be like, bro, I'm a freaking billionaire. <laughs> I'm going to call you up. Be like, Carl, you're talking to a billionaire. Yeah, how, do you like, right. how do you like the sound of right, that? Right. But- Let's pause for just a second. Did, did you feel that? Because I know I did. Anytime somebody throws around big numbers like billionaire, it's really easy to lose my ability to relate to what they're saying. And I always have to gently remind myself, that whether the number is smaller than your number or bigger than your number, try to pay attention to the point. Because what Chip is saying here is is that he's not going to shy away from the idea of being a billionaire. Because Chip is really clear all through this conversation that money's just a tool for impact. So the more of it he has, the more impact he'll be able to make. But in that same vein, I don't look around at this level and I don't see those billionaires and feel like there's less or more. I just feel like good for them. They've done some incredible things yeah. that I really respect and, and hope to implement in my business. But I, I don't look at it like I did in those 30-year time period that you're describing to where, man, I'm missing out and it doesn't seem like enough and it doesn't seem right. Joe and I wake up every day and a lot of cases are pinching ourselves just going, I can't believe it's turned out so incredibly. We're so yeah. thankful and proud and blessed and it's all true and it's all real but it's not like we look at somebody and maybe there's a net worth uh, algorithm that their net worth is higher than ours and then somehow we feel let down by that we we feel like the richest people in the world and and i wonder is that a positive or a negative you know i don't know that that's necessarily a good thing but i would certainly say it's true about us and and i don't know what that means or what that says about us Yeah, I I, like, look, what keeps coming to mind for me is from the very first conversation we had months ago and today, you're really clear about, I mean, with all the distractions we all have called being human, right? But there's still at the core of this, this idea that money's a tool. 
a tool for impact, yeah. right? A, a tool for helping other people and largely helping other people find their thing now. Like that, we had that conversation about the the guy making trailers. Yeah, I was honored, honored to help with this uh, trailer business. And and hey, just a little context is important here. The last time I was with Chip, he was telling me about a friend of his who was stuck in a job that he didn't like. But he had this idea for how to build trailers that you pull behind your truck, but he didn't know how to get started. So Chip invested in that dream. Trailer business. And and he called a couple of weeks back and was like, man, this is so fulfilling. And I hope yeah. this thing works because God knows I want to get you this money back. And I want to so I want to make you a little return on your investment. But man, I've never been happier. And I mean, this guy's an adult. He's not 20. He's a 45, almost 50 year old human being just like me. And you're going, bro, we don't have a lot of time. You know, we got plenty of time, obviously, in the general sense, yeah. but in the literal sense where we're not getting younger. I mean, you and I, Carl, aren't going to look up five years from now, 10 years from now and be like, oh, I'm glad we delayed it. I'm glad we waited a minute. No, I mean, I hope we're getting after it. And that seems to light you up much more than the house or the plane or the whatever the other thing is. And it's fine that that lights other people up. Like, it's fine. So that's what I make of it is that that enough is like, well, wait, it all comes back to the fact that money's a tool. Totally. So out of curiosity, what, I mean, what does somebody else say to the answer of what does money mean to you and when is it wrong? Like what answers are kind of like almost definitively, Hey, that's actually the inappropriate way to think about money and what money, what. Hey, it's me again. I found it interesting, but not surprising that Chip was looking for advice on how to navigate this part of his financial life. This happens all the time. It turns out that we all need advice. And it's not because we're not smart enough to do it on our own. It's often because money represents a giant blind spot. And by definition, you can't see your own blind spots. It takes an objective third party. And the other piece we're trying to sort out is how are other people doing it? This sense of community and shared struggle came up all the time in my role as a financial advisor. About money and what answers, if array of answers might also be included in the general, that's a good way to think about money that's correct. I don't know about right or wrong or good or bad, but the one thing I have found that doesn't seem to work, whether it's right or wrong, doesn't seem to work. Okay. Is that there's a place that you can arrive. Mm. If you're insecure about money, that more money will suddenly make it all better. You have this thing over here that's like off balance sheet. And the off balance sheet thing is money's a tool for impact. If money's the thing, like once I arrive there, I will suddenly feel better. I will suddenly feel secure. I will suddenly feel, if you're insecure with money, more money doesn't solve that problem. It's other work. Like, and I, I often find like a, a religious or a wisdom tradition background or some form of therapy or it's other work. Money, like that's not a job of money to make you feel good about yourself. Well, I think bottom line, I think if anybody takes anything away from this, it's just that our society has been skewed and it's likely been skewed kind of from the beginning. I don't mean to imply that we invented this. I think our parents struggled with it or their parents probably struggled with it, but I think it's smaller scales. You know, when my granddad struggled with not having enough, I think it was not enough of something that felt a little more modest, a little more manageable than what we're talking about 
talking about now. I mean, it's just like things have gotten so drastically out of whack that even people with two brand new cars and likely a Rolex on their on their wrist and likely a house behind some gate in some beautiful community still feels like it's not enough. Yeah. And I'm just like, I don't know, man. That's That doesn't sound like a sustainable long-term formula for happiness. Totally. Amen, brother. I have one last question. Let's pretend like crew is crew's five now. Five years old. Yes, sir. Let's pretend like crew 20 years from now, I'm still doing the show and crew comes on and I ask him what money means to him. What, you, what, what would you hope he would say? Oh man. He's 25, Chip. 25. Yeah. Can you imagine that? Like that's going to no. happen. You know that, right? That's true. It's crazy. We just dropped our youngest off at Cal Poly and I'm like, how in the world? Wow. You know, we got back and the cat was in the house. We're like, the cat <laughs> is the only thing. Like, You know what I mean? Yeah. So anyway, there's going to be a day when Crew's gone and he's 25. How does it feel? Not to delay the inevitable, because I swear I'll answer the question, but I need a little advice in that same way. We've just sent our first one off, so we've got four in tow in his wake. But how does it feel to come back and there be just the cat on the couch? Is it is it liberating and you, you're excited and ready to uh, start a new chapter? Or is it devastating and, and sad and take you a minute to, to get acclimated to it? No, it's super awesome. Like it's it's awesome because our kids are our best friends, and they they're back around all the time. We'll see them all in two weeks for Thanksgiving, and sweet. They're calling every day, and I hear their mother on the phone with them, maybe more. You know, like so it, <laughs> it's 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 amazing. And then we've got this whole new opportunity to be worth similar. Like my wife's name is Corey. I'm like Corey, she's a designer. Like what are you what are you working on? She just wants to work on her own projects and build a retreat center. And we're like, you know, we can do that now. Come on. So it's been it's been great and sad that you're like, oh, sure. where's my buddy? Right? They're not right there every day, but it, it's it feels right. Let's put it that way. It feels right. Wow. What a beautiful yeah. sentiment. And maybe there's some way to tie all that together to the idea that when we moved out to the farm, something about that felt right. And it wasn't necessarily bigger or smaller. It was just right. And for some reason, we didn't really care to evolve from that position to bigger and better and more expensive and et cetera. It was just right. And even from a success standpoint, however successful we are right this second, and I don't even know how to quantify that, but it just feels very right. And that idea that you and your wife came back from raising those incredible kids and then your last one finally leaving the house, which is celebratory in so many ways, but then so sad in so many other ways. Right, and right, you just right. felt like this is right. This is this natural next step of our lives and our, our relationship. But the fact that you say it felt right is very encouraging, very challenging. I hope when crew... Who's, it, who's five, who would be 25 when he was on your show and 20 years from today came to you. I hope that what I'm feeling is that it's right. You know, it's that it's right that he's where he's at and his older brothers and sisters, there's four above him, are all in great positions and, and are in great places that they feel fulfilled and happy relationally and spiritually and otherwise. And then for crew, I hope that he was sitting here telling you that money is not the answer to your problems. And uh, I, I heard Mark Cuban say this years ago, very similar to your description earlier, was just, just like, listen, if you're happy before you get rich, 
you might be happier. You might be even happier or as happy. But if you were miserable before you got rich, you're going to be miserable after you're rich. And that's all I'm saying is that Joe and I must have been very, very happy, even though some of the circumstances were very complicated and exhausting and, and grueling and tiring on our relationship and our lives. But we must have been happy because when the success started laying uh, foot in our ecosystem, we just have become happier and happier. But if we could fast forward 20 years from today and have our kids speak on our behalf on your podcast and they said healthy, confident, positive things about the way they view money, I think Joe and I would have big smiles on our face thinking that, that maybe we did something right, you know? Amen, Ship. Thanks, brother. That's so fun. Awesome. And we do need, we should go fly fish and solve the rest of these problems out here in Utah. I love it. Tell me, I should know this, but I'm embarrassed. Tell me what 50 fires to give me the uh, breakdown uh, about the, uh, about the reason it's called that. It's about this dream my wife and I have of the retreat center. We're building in our backyard now with a fireplace with like old rocks, you know what I mean? That have been there forever. Yeah. And just imagining having 50 fires a year where we have these kind of conversations and somebody was like, I can't remember who on the team was like, that's the name of the show, 50 fires. So that's how it happened. Oh, that's cool. So almost like you have these little fireplace moment settings and these conversations occur from that and 50 of them equals these 50 fires that you're- Yeah, 50 a year and yeah, we'll just keep rolling. Ah, that makes sense. One a week. Yeah, even that piece, because I'm so stupid, took me a second, but I'm like, wait a second. Wait, there's 52? It's not called 52 fires? <laughs> Anyways, we'll take two weeks off. That's what I was going to say. Of course, you're going to take the holidays <laughs> off. Maybe there's a uh, New Year's uh, a reboot, you know, and the, but 50 yeah. other than that. But man, that's exciting. Well, keep me in the loop and yep. we want to help any way we can. Okay. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed that conversation between Chip and I as much as I did. And while there's a lot to think about, I'd like to just point you to one idea. What is your deeper sense of why? The question becomes, how do we navigate it? And the most powerful way I've found to navigate is to get more clear about the purpose of money in your life and create a simple document. In fact, I have a dream that there will be a day where everybody has this simple document that I like to call a statement of financial purpose. Don't get too concerned about the formality of it. Just pull out a piece of cardstock and a Sharpie. In fact, I did that for Chip. I wrote on a piece of cardstock using a Sharpie and his was very simple. It said, money equals a tool for impact. On my statement of financial purpose, it simply says, time with my family, mainly outside. What would yours say? Take an opportunity, maybe this weekend, with your spouse or partner, kids, friends, a mentor maybe. Walk through this conversation and see if you can reduce it down to a simple statement. I've seen others, in fact, one of my favorite statements of financial purpose is a woman I worked with years ago. On the top of her statement of financial purpose, it says, I want to be able to buy any type of cheese I want without feeling guilty. And another one, a close friend of mine, actually his statement of financial purpose just says Europe. So play around with it. What does money mean to you? Create a statement of financial purpose. And you know what would be amazing is I'd love to see them. Throw them up on Instagram and tag at 50 fires so I can see them. 
Thanks, my friends, for listening to another episode of 50 Fires, and I look forward to seeing you next week. 50 Fires is a production of Blind Nil Audio in association with The Roost. My friends, if you find this show valuable, share it with a friend and leave a six or seven star review on Apple Podcasts. It's crazy how much that helps the show get introduced to larger audiences. I'm Carl Richards. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you around the fire for our next episode. The views, information, or opinions expressed in the series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Chip and Joanna Gaines, Blind Nail Audio, nor Magnolia.